We are in John chapter 16 this morning. We are finishing John 16 as we work our way through the Gospel of John. There's a book out, came out earlier this year, called Therefore I Have Hope. It's written by a gentleman named Cameron Cole. He's on staff at a church. I meant to look at this during the break. I think it's Alabama, if I remember right. I don't know if you know. Yeah, it's Alabama, that direction. Um, it, is, it starts with a story that, that frames the book. Um, he describes the moment five years ago. He had been on an overnight with a church activity and woke up to the phone ringing and ringing, his wife calling him. And he answered, and she had terror in her voice and pleaded with him to meet her at the children's hospital right away. And when he pressed her for information, she reluctantly said that their three-year-old son had died in his sleep. Of the days that followed that, Cole wrote this. He said, with our heads shaking, we repeated a question that expressed confusion, powerlessness, despair, and sorrow. What are we going to do? Where do we go from here? We felt wholly incapable of putting one step in front of another as we walked through fields of shock and sorrow that are utterly uncharted for most people. Confusion, powerlessness, despair, and sorrow. If you haven't already walked through that sort of tragedy at some point in your life, you probably will at some point, eventually, some season of grief, the horror of being victimized by abuse, the pain of some crippling disease or injury, the fear that arises from a sudden devastating financial loss, betrayal, and abandonment by a spouse, sudden loss of someone that you love, confusion, powerlessness, despair, and sorrow. Where is your hope in that moment? What do you find yourself reaching for? and clinging to at those times when you are beginning to descend into the, the valleys in life. What brings stability? Here at the end of John chapter 16, the disciples who have been with Jesus now for the better part of three years, a little over three years, have been walking and living with Jesus during this period, and now these 11 men are careening toward this kind of valley. They are hearing what Jesus is saying, but they are not comprehending it. They're hearing his words, but it's not settling their hearts, and instead they are being flooded with confusion and despair and sorrow. If you look in John 16, let me pick up in verse 16, and Jesus reveals their hearts here. John 16, 16. A little while, and you will see me no longer, and again a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me. Pause there. This is John, in his kindness, as one of those men who was there, now recording for us years later to let us know that, yes, we were thoroughly confused at this point. He repeats that same set of lines three times in these verses to try to help 
us see what he and his fellow disciples were going through in that moment and what Jesus Christ was very much aware of, as he points out. It is the night before his crucifixion. Jesus has been teaching them. He has been speaking promises to them and encouragement to them, things that he is teaching them meant to hold them up, to be a fortress for them as they walk through not only the next 24 hours and his crucifixion, but then what follows after that and even the months and years excuse me, of ministry after that. They are about to descend into what is possibly the worst hour of their lives to this point. The master that they have been devoted to will be publicly executed, nailed to a cross, even though there is no accusation of wrongdoing. It's clear that he has not done anything. Yet he has been giving them hope to cling to in that tragedy, and they are struggling. It is still despair, and it is still confusion. And that's what we're getting a glimpse of here in these verses. It is, it is John's admission that, yes, Jesus was saying all of this to us, but we weren't getting it. We were talking amongst ourselves saying, what does this mean? This going to the Father stuff, we, we don't get it. We saw that last week in verses 5 and 6 when he rebuked them for not understanding that he was going to the Father. You, you're not asking where I'm going. You're not focusing in on what I'm saying to you, which is, I am going back to the Father. That should be the, the moment of rejoicing for you because if I go to the Father, it means that's like a seal of approval on the ministry of the Son. When the Father receives the Son back up into heaven, it is the sign that the Son has completed the work the Father has given him to do and it confirms everything that the Father sent him to do. But instead, they are distraught and confused and saying amongst themselves, what does he mean? What does he mean going to the Father? What does he mean a little while we won't see him? And then we will. We don't understand. And Jesus is pointing it out. Jesus says to them, I know what you're talking about over there. I know what your questions are. And you're confused. And so he now speaks into that. Look at verse 20. Truly, truly, kind of Jesus' way of getting attention at this point. Listen to this. Truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered her baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now. Stop there. Jesus is putting into words, saying out loud what is going on in the disciples' hearts at this moment. They are being overcome, not just with questions and, and some chaos, but it is beginning to turn into heartbreak. In fact, he, in, the, in two verses, uses four different words. You will weep, you will lament, all sort of external pouring out, you will have sorrow, in other words, you're going to be gripped. And then he describes it as anguish as he compares that analogy of a woman who is in labor. And so he's used all of those words just sort of piling on the descriptions of this sense of grief that is coming over you, this, this feelings that, that he fully sees in them. He could not have been clearer about the darkness that they were headed toward at this moment. In less than 24 hours, his lifeless body, nails driven through hands and feet, would be brought down from a cross, wrapped for burial, and put into a cold stone tomb. 
and it would seem at that moment painfully clear to the disciples that the Messiah they had put all of their hope in was now gone. We know that they were stunned at the resurrection, though they shouldn't have been. Jesus had said that. They just know that he is gone. And what Jesus is describing is what they will experience, overcome with agony, grief and wailing and tears, and no doubt all of the questions that we would ask. Now what? Why? What do I do next? Now where do we go? And to make things worse, as Jesus describes it here, the same tragedy that leaves them just in anguish is a cause for the celebration of the world. We go through moments, and and we hope when we go through those valleys that there are people who sort of rally around and experience that with us and and pour out sympathy and come close to us. And and what he's describing here is, yeah, you guys are going to go through tremendous anguish, and and you'll be together perhaps and comfort one another, but, but the real heartbreak of this that takes it even further is outside the doors of the room where you are, the world will just be rejoicing. The very thing that you think has ended your world will be the thing that the world will say, good, no more preaching of sin and repentance. We don't have to hear him anymore. He's gone. And he says, you'll be going through this terrible tragedy and they will be celebrating. So that's where we are at the end of of chapter 16. The disciples are descending into despair and anguish. Jesus knows it and he is speaking to that. And, And in fact, it's not just despair But later on, when we get a little further in this passage, we're going to see that there's a moment when the disciples actually think, okay, we we think we're getting it now. And in that moment, Jesus says, and you know what will come next? Fear. You will be terrified at what happens, so much so that you will abandon me. You will run for your own self-protection. And so even when they sort of think they're getting it, it goes to show again they are confused and sorrowful and now even terrified. So it's into that that Jesus is speaking in John 16. It's into that that Jesus speaks in ways that apply to you and I when we walk through those moments in life that that are so hard and seem so unbearable at the time. Jesus is speaking promises to them again. That's what we've looked at over and over again from chapter 14 on is the promises of Jesus. Four things that he promises in this passage. Invincible joy communion with God the Father through Jesus Christ, ongoing communion, forgiveness of their sin, and then this all-surpassing peace. So let's think about these. these. All of these are spoken immediately to those 11 disciples and will be fulfilled for them, but they are by way of application to all of us. We can take hope in each of these. The immediate fulfillment of what he's saying in verses 20 through 22, the ones that we just read, you will sorrow and then you will rejoice. We understand with the benefit of of knowing the story, we know what he's talking about. He's talking about his crucifixion and then his resurrection. They will go through sorrow like they could not imagine and, and then that sorrow will give way to remarkable joy. They will go through the lowest moment of Jesus being crucified and buried, when when that moment of tragedy, when they feel just fully engulfed by it. It's that moment if you've walked through a terrible situation that you you wake up and you think, I wish it was a dream. Just wish that, that I could start this over somehow. Wish I could just turn the clock back. Wish this really didn't happen. 
He knows they're going to go through that moment, but he doesn't leave them there. He says, your sorrow will turn to joy. And he takes the analogy of a woman who is in labor. And as she experiences the anguish of labor, and then the child is born, and suddenly that little one is is delivered and he is put in her arms, and that, that seemingly unbearable pain is now, there's the experience of unbelievable joy in its place. There's now a, a child and there's a life. He does say here that she no longer remembers the anguish. I've talked to enough of you women to know that you do actually remember it. I think the point here is it's not something you dwell on. That, that, that dwelling on that searing pain now is, a, now is an unbelievable joy that this child has been born. He's talking about the resurrection. They go through this period when they see him on the cross and they know he's been buried and they know he is gone and it is horrible agony for them, horrible loss at that point, and then they, they see him. They thought they would never see him again. And there he is, and he has the marks in his hands and feet, and it is clear that this is Jesus, and they see him. And when he appears to them alive, even then, there's still this sense of disbelief. Luke describes it. Luke 23, 41 says, They still disbelieved for joy and were marveling. That little preposition for could also be from, and it's the idea that they were so delirious with joy that they couldn't believe what they were seeing. That They were just so overwhelmed at seeing Jesus alive. It just seemed like this, this can't be, this, this is unbelievable that we're actually seeing him. They disbelieved for joy. So he says in verse 22, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. The promise here was not for a moment of joy. This is not just immediate resurrection, sort of Easter Sunday joy, because he says this is joy that you will receive that will not be taken from you. It is a promise of invincible joy that no one can take from you. Isn't that a wonderful promise for us? That I will give you a joy that no one will be able to take away? From the moment you begin trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior, believing that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, that he died for your sin and rose victorious, you have a joy from God that no one can take away. And that joy is rooted in what Christ has done. And that God loves you, and he has saved you and rescued you. Paul wrote in Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no, what? Condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who are in Christ, there is no fear of judgment. There has been redemption, and that is because of the love of God. He went on to write, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I point to that and the love of God because 
John's going to come back to the love of God being the basis of all of this down in verse 27. And because I, if you think way back to when we first started the Gospel of John, one of the things we saw about John is he is captivated by God's love for him. He is in awe of the fact that God could possibly love a sinner like him. And it comes out in this Gospel, the disciple whom Jesus loved as he describes himself, and it comes out in his letters repeatedly in 1 John the marvel of the love of God for sinners. And here it is again. We are loved by our Creator, and because we are, and nothing can separate us from that, we have invincible joy. On account of Christ, the God of the universe, the Creator and the righteous judge, whom we all must stand before, loves us because He loves His Son, and we are in Christ. And we are objects of his love as the Son is objects, an object of his love. So that way, even death cannot separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Therefore, we have invincible joy. Look at verse 23. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. Verse 25, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. There's a second promise in this section. We have the promise of invincible joy, joy that cannot be taken away. And the second part of this is a promise of ongoing communion with God the Father through Jesus Christ. There is a communion, an intimate fellowship that we have with God the Father through Jesus. Now, for Jewish disciples listening to Jesus, the notion of praying to God the Father was not unusual Read it all throughout the Old Testament. The Psalms and the prophets, they are crying out to God, and they are praying and asking God to intercede. What's new here, he says, when he says, truly, truly, in verse 23, what's new now is we will now go to God the Father in the name and authority of his Son, Jesus Christ. We now have a, a unique ability in coming to the Father to come through the Son, as we are joined to Him, our, our prayers to the Father now are, are governed by the fact that we are indwelt by the power of Jesus through His Spirit. In verse 23, when He says, you will ask nothing of me, let's just be clear here, He says that before He says, truly, truly, I say whatever you ask of the Father. What's He talking about when He says, in that day you will ask nothing of me? What Jesus is doing here is responding to another piece of this sort of fear and chaos that the disciples are experiencing. In, in their minds, the fact that Jesus was going away and they could not go with him troubled them on many different levels, not the least of which is, how are we going to talk to you and ask you questions if you go away? We have spent the last three years and you have taught us and you have answered our questions and when we were confused, we were able to speak right to you and now you're going away. We are at the height of our confusion. What hope is there for us now? Now what do we do? Jesus is speaking to that 
Who are they going to ask if he's gone? He's already pointed them earlier in, the, in, in this discourse back to the coming of the Holy Spirit. When he goes away, he will send the Spirit. The Spirit will guide and teach them and remind them of the things that he had taught them, and he will bring these things to mind and give them knowledge and will reveal to them truth that they will give to us in, in, in the New Testament. But his point here is you will not be left in a state of confusion with a whole host of, of perplexing questions. In that day, in that day when your sorrow is turned to joy, in that day of resurrection when you see Jesus Christ, all that right now seems mind-boggling to you that you don't understand, and I'm going away and you're saying, so who's going to explain this to us? You won't have those questions when you see me risen, when the Spirit comes. You will not be in a state of utter confusion. That's really what he's saying to them there. But then he says, truly, truly, and he's sort of switching at this point. You're not, you're not going to be overwhelmed with, with the same sort of confusion that you're having right now when you're talking amongst yourselves. But truly, I say to you, when you do ask something from God the Father, you will do so in my name. You will do so on the basis of my death and resurrection applied to you, my authority, my work done on your behalf. So when he says truly, truly, he's making a new point. You won't have to worry about being baffled by a lot of questions that will, will shake your faith in some way. Your knowledge of truth will grow with the coming of the Spirit. But truly, when you do ask something of the Father, know that you will do so on the basis of the saving work of Jesus Christ, that you will go to him as you are his child in his son, and he will hear you and answer you because of who he is and what he's done, because of who Jesus is and what he's done. When we think about that, when we contemplate this promise and what Jesus is saying here, the really shocking part should be the fact that we take it so for granted. That here is Jesus saying, I am giving to you, you know, you know how you have watched my life and how I have had sweet communion with the Father, and I have gone off to pray with the Father, and I have spoken to the Father, and time and time again I have communed with the Father. I am now, I'm now handing that to you and saying, in my name, do that. And, and what, should, what should disturb us here is how often we don't, that we don't see the, the awesome privilege he's given to us. I don't know about you, but if I had insider access to someone with greatness, humanly speaking. I, I think I have insider access to the God of the universe through this passage here. If, I, if it was some celebrity, some music star, some actor, actress, and I had, I had insight, I was buds with this person. You'd probably know about it because it would be on my Facebook feed, right? You'd see the pictures of me right there with whoever that person is. We're tight, we're friends. And I probably wouldn't want to share that access either. If you came to me and you said, hey, can I be best friends with fill in the blank? I'd probably say, no, I don't think so. I think that's something I got. And I'm not sharing that, right? I mean, that's kind of the way we are. He, this, that is exactly what Jesus Christ is doing here. He's saying, you have watched me throughout these years, and, and I have enjoyed intimate communion with the Father. I have asked of the Father. I have pleaded with the Father. I have interceded to the Father. I have spoken to the Father as a son does to a father. And I am I'm giving that to you. And I want you to experience that communion. I want you to go to the Father in my name. 
as being in Christ, as being a son. And the marvel of it is how infrequently we take advantage of such communion. That's why the, the one command in this passage is that one in verse 24. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. There, here comes the imperative, underline, exclamation point. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. He says, you have this promise. Ask. Pray. There's instruction here, really, that's important to us because he says, Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Think about this. He's just said to us, I am promising you invincible joy. We have that as believers. There's a gap, though, for us between the knowledge of the truth of possessing invincible joy and the ongoing experience of invincible joy, right? That's where when we get into the circumstances of life and the hardships and the tragedies, it's, it's the experience of that invincible joy that's sometimes the struggle. We know we have this resurrection joy, but what verse 24 says there at the end is, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. He's making it clear that our, our, deepest, our, our deepest experience of that joy comes when we Pray and commune with the Father and ask for it, for that experience. Comes when we speak to the Father and we depend on the Father. This is, this is all related back to John 15. I am the vine, you are the what? Branches. Abide in me, depend on me, rest in me. And so he says here, I'm giving you invincible joy. Now, the reality is you and I know there are days we don't feel like we possess invincible joy. And what he's saying to us here is ask so that you receive it to its fullest. That, that's exactly the moment when we are to cry out to our Father and say, help me to experience this joy that you have given. The eternal resurrection joy of life in Christ is ours, but our experience of it reaches fullest measure when we are humbly dependent on God and abiding in Christ and pleading for wisdom strength, and the experience of that joy. It should not surprise us when we are in difficult situations and we are feeling frustrated, angry, impatient, and then we stop and, and, and the question is, when was the last time you prayed and asked God for wisdom in this situation and asked God for strength and asked him to make his joy full in you in this situation? We stop and go, well, yeah, I haven't done much of that in this. And it shouldn't surprise us when there's that gap in the experience of this joy when we're not crying out. We have a heavenly father who longs to pour out good gifts on us, but he also calls on us to be humble to ask for them. And all of this rests in his love for us. He says again, look at the end of 26. I do not say to you that I will ask the father on your behalf for the father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. There's two points here. The one is the fact that he's saying, I'm not saying that I'm going to ask for you. You ask in my name. You ask based on my authority. His, his point is, prior to trusting in Jesus Christ and Savior, you and I were separated from God because of our sin. He made us, we are created in the image of God, but a person who's not trusting in Jesus Christ stands at hostility to God and is separated from God in need of forgiveness and grace. So what he's saying here is, 
I don't, I don't have to go and ask this for you. You don't have to stand at a distance as if you're separated from the Father and say, Jesus, could you please ask the Father for whatever? He's saying, you ask the Father because now you have been brought near. And so the, the first part of this is just the Father loves you. As the Father loves me, his Son, he loves you. And so you are asking in my name, but know that God the Father is a loving Father. And he, he desires your best, and he wants to hear your prayer. He wants you to cry out to him. The other part of this, though, is that the, the love of God, here in verse 27, it's not saying that he loves us because we loved him. It's tempting to read it that way when it says, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. The problem we have with that is John addressed exactly this in 1 John 4, 19, when he says, we love because why? He first loved us. And so the, the theology is pretty clear that God initiates and we respond. The point of verse 27 is to say, you want to know how you know you're loved by God? You love me and you believe in me. That's not normal. Everybody doesn't love me or believe in me. That's why they're out celebrating my crucifixion, because they don't. You want to know that God loves you? If you love Jesus and you believe in Jesus, that is the evidence of God loving you, that God poured out his love and opened your eyes and transformed your heart so that you would now love Jesus Christ and believe in him. That is the love of God, and that's, that's what he's saying to them here, is, is you are loved, and you want to know how you're loved? Look at what he's done in your life. God set his love on you, and he opened your heart to believe and to love me. Ephesians 1.5, speaking of God the Father, says, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Our love for Christ and our faith in Christ is the result of the loving work of God the Father in us. That love we celebrate and becomes the basis for that joy, that invincible joy that we have. So let's read on. Verse 29, his disciples, this is, here comes the aha moment for the disciples, at least they think. His disciples said, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Pause here. This is the disciples saying, okay, we got it. Now we understand. Watch Jesus' response. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Because behold, you could put a because in here, but I think the connection is there. Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and leave me alone, yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Here's that, that moment for the disciples of, okay, we got it. Eh, you think you do. Not quite. He gives in this section some promises. We have the promise of invincible joy, we have the promise of communion with God the Father through Jesus Christ. We also have a promise of forgiveness of sin because of Christ. Here at the end of chapter 16, the disciples for a moment think they've got it. Okay, so we get it. You're returning to the Father. We believe now. And then he goes, nah, not really. We know they don't fully believe because we've already read they were shocked at his resurrection. If they had fully believed, they would have anticipated that he would be risen in three days, as he said, and instead they were surprised by that. And so at, at this moment, Jesus says in verse 31, you think you've got this, right? Well, you know what? 
you who are making this bold profession of faith at this moment, in a very short time, you are going to scatter. You're going to run in self-protective fear, and you will abandon me. He says, I won't be alone, because the Father is with me. But as for you guys, know that you will all scatter. That's the point of verse 32. We know that Peter had already been warned about this, right, earlier in the evening. Peter, who vows to go with Jesus anywhere. Jesus says, Peter, before the sunrise even happens, you will deny me three times. You will deny even having any relationship with me or knowing me. Now he's saying to the rest of them, you all will abandon me. But it doesn't end there, does it? Wouldn't it be horrible if that's the point at which this, this ended? Them leaving and that being the end? Jesus didn't stop. He says in verse 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. There's two promises in this. The one is the obvious one that we'll get to, which is the promise of peace. But the other one is, is this promise of forgiveness of sin. Think about it this way. How does this group of faithless, cowardly disciples, all of whom are representative of exactly what we would have done in the same circumstances, how does this faithless group of disciples who abandoned Jesus in the hour of greatest need, how do they abandon and yet we, we come and we find them as being his followers, the apostles who go out and preach the word and who, who with reckless abandon say, we don't care what you do to us. In fact, we would count it an honor to suffer for Jesus Christ. We will proclaim this gospel and you cannot silence us. What happens from here to there that moves them from running and being deserters to now being bold preachers of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And I would submit to you that does not happen apart from experiencing forgiveness of sin. There is a restoration that is implied in verse 33 when Jesus has just got done saying, you're going to scatter and abandon me, but I'm not done with you. I'm not done with you. I'm going to continue to give you peace and courage and uphold you, and I'm going to do all the things that I've already promised of using you and bearing fruit through you, and that is because Jesus, first and foremost, will restore them. We'll see this later on in the Gospel of John when he, he, he sits with Peter and restores Peter, who is broken at his denial. And, and Jesus says, go feed my sheep, Peter. And, and, and what he's saying here, what's implied in verse 33, is that their abandonment of Jesus would happen, but it would not be the final chapter in God's story of their lives. That there was more to come, and this sin would be forgiven, and they would be restored, and they would be brought near and given courage and peace. Their sin of unbelief and running and self-protection would be reconciled, and they would be restored to God. Think about it. You and I read this story, and we have the benefit of knowing it. We've read it before. We know where it's going. We know what happens the next day. We know what happens on that first day of the week when Jesus is risen. We know that he ascends into heaven. And even we, with all of that, knowing the grace of God in Jesus Christ, still do have our moments when we are tempted toward unbelief. Still have our moments when the, the best thing seems like just self-protection. I know God's promises, but I am, I am running at this point, and running from him instead of running toward him. We do that. And here is, here is Jesus 
giving again a hope and a promise. The way back to him is through forgiveness. You and I, blessed with all that we have and all of his kind work, still also know the wonder of God's grace, that he would continue to work in people that he's not only redeemed, but who still struggle with temptation and still struggle in moments of unbelief. And he continues to work in us, that he who began that good work will be faithful to see it to that day when we stand before him. He continues to, to work in us. So there is, there is a promise here of forgiveness and restoration. The last promise is pretty obvious when he says, you will have peace. This world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I've overcome the world. There is a promise of peace, all surpassing peace. Jesus has already alluded to this back in chapter 14. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. In this moment, as Jesus is speaking these words, peace is the farthest thing from the minds of these disciples. I mean, Everything that Jesus has said has triggered some level of fear, some kind of anxiety, some kind of confusion at this point as to what's next. Knowing they are in Jerusalem, they are in the heart of the opposition territory, if you will, that there have been vows to, to get Jesus there, and they are in the midst of all this. And Jesus now says, even as their hearts are completely twisted around anxiety, I give you peace. You will, you will descend into darkest despair, but know this. He's already acknowledged the weeping and the sorrow and the anguish, but he says through it all, I promise you peace. And it's not just possible, potential, limited peace, because he says that peace is on the basis of my victory, because I have overcome the world. The same world that you will see think that it has conquered me by putting me to death. The same world that will come after you and persecute you. Know this, I'm already victorious. I already on the cross have paid the price for sin and by the resurrection have proven my victory over sin and death. Rest in me. Because I am the victor, Jesus is saying. I've overcome this. The triumph that Jesus has in his death and resurrection, the triumph that the world will see when he comes again reigning as king, is now the triumph that he is saying to his disciples, you have peace because I have conquered this. I have conquered sin and death in the world. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, his victory is yours. There will still be difficult days. He says it here. In the world, you will have tribulation. It's not optional. So we will still have painful days, and we will still walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and we will still have times when we are asking questions, and we are not sure of what's next. We live in a fallen world that groans under the curse of sin. But our victory in Christ is sure. He has defeated the enemy. He has defeated the ruler of this world. He has defeated the power of sin. And he has victory over death that is ours in Christ. And so he is able to fully forgive our sin and restore us. He is able to give to us invincible joy 
in whatever we face. He is able to say, pray to the Father and have communion with him through me, and he is able to give to us an all-surpassing peace that no circumstance can take away. I started with a quote from a book called It's Therefore I Have Hope. If you want to look for it, I would encourage you toward Cameron Cole. And at the end of the book, he wrote this. The road ahead of me is long and painful, but Christ has defeated sin and death through the cross. I can face reality and make this journey because on the other side of the cross is the resurrection. In the same way that Christ rose from the dead, so too can my life emerge from the darkness into the light. The gospel tells me that I cannot redeem myself. Only Christ can heal and free my heart. My only hope is to trust him to do so. My tragedy has not disrupted the narrative of my life. My story remains God's story, and it is a story of redemption through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have promised in your word to us, to your disciples, a joy that cannot be taken away, a communion with the Father, a forgiveness won on the cross, and a peace that passes all understanding. We bow before you now to thank you and to praise you. Lord, if there is anyone listening this morning who is not trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, we pray that today would be the day when you would open their eyes to see the sacrifice of the Son on the cross that we cannot save ourselves. You have put in, in the soul of each individual a longing for for something more than this life offers, a peace, a joy, a meaning, something after death that goes on and on. And Lord, we believe from your word that that is only found ultimately in Christ. And so we pray that even this day, that you would be through the, the ministry of your word bringing people to believe in Jesus Christ as Savior. For we who are trusting in Christ, Lord, may we be encouraged and challenged by your word to be people who ask, people who are grateful for the communion that we have, that even now we are speaking to the God of the universe, the creator of all, who sustains all, who is judge of all, and we come in a sweet fellowship. Help us to enjoy that this week, to be humbly dependent and to cry out, to savor the peace that we have amidst any and every circumstance. Thank you for invincible joy. Help us to live that out so the world around us would see you in us. These things we pray in the name of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.